Politics Monday, setting the week's political agenda on Wellington Mornings. And I just know it, that in this life, my love is you. Welcome back. It's Politics Monday. Labour MP for Hutt South, Ginny Anderson. Good morning, Ginny. Good morning. And National Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. Nice to see you again, Nicola. You've been so busy since your new job. (laughs) Yeah, look, it's great to be with you in the studio. Yeah, we've been missing you. I'm going to start with you on this one. Green Party members have voted to reopen nominations for the second co-leader role currently held by James Shaw. He's now, this morning, I don't know whether you've caught up with this, has announced that he will recontest the role. What do you think, Nicola, is behind this? Well, look, obviously James Shaw and I have pretty different politics, but he's a straight shooter and I I feel quite sorry for him over the whole way this has unfolded. It's pretty tough and I think clearly you've got factions in the Green Party, there's some infighting and instability there. You've got that tug uh, between members about the direction to take the party in and clearly a strong element who want it to be more of a radical protest party and that's what James is coming up against and I guess the concern for him is even if he does fight another day that these detractors don't go away they regroup and come back again later for a second go. Yeah Ginny I watched him on TV last night and I believe that I'm a really good body reader of people he was under pressure and shocked. Yeah well he said that he said he was still kind of reeling from from what had happened and um Look, I know James reasonably well, and he's a good guy. You know, I think he's got some real big wins for his party over the last few years. Some really big changes have been made in terms of climate change, in terms of electric vehicles, in terms of transitioning the way that we live. So, you know, um, I I rate him personally. But saying that, you know, the Prime Minister's made it pretty clear that he still retains all his portfolios, no matter what happens within his own party dynamics. Um, And and really, it's a matter for the Green Party, you know. There'll be those internal ructions happening, as there are in many other parties, and that's a matter for them to sort out as to who their leader is. Uh, I feel, Nicola, that that he's male, older, and the Greens want... And and probably righter than what the Greens want, like as in the you know more to the the centrist rather than the left. So I think his days are numbered. You uh, look as Ginny says, it is ultimately a matter for the Green Party, but it's clear that what's playing out here is about their internal politics, and obviously there are elements who see him as too centrist and accommodating of the government, and there's parts of the party who want to take a more radical burn-down-the-house approach. Uh, And that's really destabilising for for James, for the leadership, for the party, and uh, and ultimately, uh, if it comes to it, for the government. Jenny, do you think that Chloe Swarbrick will step up? Do you think she'll have a go, or do you think she'll wait? I mean, it's only a matter of time. We all know that. I don't think you have to be too smart to work that out. But do you reckon the time's now for her, or do you think she'll wait? Well, there seems to be definitely a movement there who are putting her name around um, in terms of a possibility. But you, we'll just have to wait and see what, what comes out what comes out over time. I mean, I think it's one of those sort of classic old um, arguments whether, you know, are your powers in political you know influence best used inside the tent or, or outside the tent? And, and, you know, there are benefits in both of those ways. So, um, you know, being outside the tent, yes, you can make more noise, but do you actually drive long-term change? Or being inside government, you know, yes, you do have to make compromises, but some of those compromises 
make quite significant long-term changes to New Zealand. Yeah, and that's what concerns me, uh, Nicola. I want. I wonder whether they want to be, the Green Party want to be more radical and don't want to be inside the tent. They want to be outside the tent lighting fires. Yeah, and actually, if you want to be outside the tent lighting fires, don't come to Parliament, because <laughs> the purpose of Parliament is to draft bills, uh, to get laws passed, to work within policy frameworks. But this is an element of the Green Party that's always been there, quite strong, uh, and it's rising up its head again. OK, let's move on. Labour MP Paul Eagle has announced this, uh, his Wellington mayoralty campaign policies. He's promising to run the ruler over uh, council spending, a new city development authority and a world-class pre- entertainment precinct. Uh, let's start with you, Ginny, on this. What are your thoughts? Um, look, I rate Paul. I think he's... Um I think he's kind of the right person for the job in the sense, I think I said this last time when we when we talked about it, that um, he's got the ability to bring people from a range of different backgrounds together and I think that's what's really been missing from the picture in Wellington City. So there are a whole range of different views and interests and backgrounds and you know his job is really to get those people around the table on the same page and I think he's got a good shot of actually being able to do that. For do you think he is capable of doing that? Yeah, I do. I think his strengths really come with connecting with people and communicating. Um, You see that in terms of his popularity when he stood as a local MP. uh, He gets a great turnout and he has a real ability to connect with people. And I think he's genuine. I think he really cares about Wellington and wants to make it a better place. By memory, his majority slipped in the last election and I feel that it probably might have slipped again. again. Uh, Do you think that maybe, just maybe, people have probably think that he's had his go and and it's time for something different? Look, I I don't think so. That's not what I hear. I think he had, I think it was the third or fourth biggest majority in the country. I'd have to check the numbers. But he does very well. And that's because he works hard. He gets out in the doors. He he talks to people. He door knocks. He engages with people on a day-to-day basis. And I'd expect that to continue if he was the mayor of Wellington. Nicola Willis, you would have seen his plans and his ideas. Is this the right plan and the right ideas for Wellington? Is this what Wellington's been looking for? Well, I think it's clear that whoever the next mayor is uh, has a big task ahead of them. Uh, Surveys show that nine out of ten Wellingtonians are dissatisfied with the council and its performance currently. Uh, So there's clearly uh, a mood for doing things differently. I looked at the campaign commitments that Paul had made and on the one hand he was saying keep to the basics, run the ruler over council spending. That sounds good to me. I think a lot of ratepayers say to me we'd like to stick uh, to getting the basics done, no more sewage in the streets, thanks. But then on the other hand he was also saying let's establish this new development authority, this new arts precinct. Um, And I just wonder how those things, the circle will be squared on that. Because on the one hand being on the basics, but then on the other hand having a whole list of new priorities, the uh, budget is not endless, unfortunately. And I wonder also with people that run for mayor, whether they should not bring in experts rather than themselves to run the ruler over financial stuff. You know, that financial stuff's big numbers. And, you know, a layman really doesn't have the, you know, the... Um, the smarts or the 
acumen, accounting acumen to be able to run a ruler through them, do they, Jenny? No, that's right. And I mean, it's similar for opposition. And we've, I think Nicola agrees now that, you know, there's a proposition now for having an independent unit that can go through and evaluate budget bids. And that, that's proposed and agreed to for for central government. So I think a thing for, something like that for local government would work really well because it increases transparency. You get a whole lot of numbers being thrown around depending on who's standing. And people don't really know what's the truth. So I think having greater transparency in that, in that area gives people who are paying the rates a bit more um, information about where their money's going. Your thoughts, Nicola? Oh, look, I think you'd want to bring experts to bear on that, um, and I'm pretty convinced that there will be some line items in the council budget that don't meet the bar uh, for effective spending. Uh, everyone around that council table needs to remember it's ratepayer dollars, and people are doing it tough right now. Last week it was revealed that advertising spending by government departments has increased at least 121% since Labor was elected. It's risen from $56 million in 2016 and 17 to more than $124 million in 2021. Ginny, how can this possibly be justified? Well, if you take COVID out of the mix, it's, it's decreased from five years ago. So if you take COVID out of it, it's actually gone down comparatively five years ago and, and it, it's just COVID it's the fact that you've had alert level changes you've had TV ads you've had the whole vaccination campaign going out with getting our vaccination rates to one of the highest in the world um, you know we've had a huge uh, success in terms of how much our, our people have worked as collectively to do the best thing for each other and, and a big part of that has been strong clear public communications on what to do when to do it and how to keep yourself safe. A lot of that would have been free though, Jenny. I mean, we had the, the announcements every day live on TV One. We had every news channel, radio, us involved. We all got behind it. Um, surely they could have um, not spent quite as much money. Wow. <laughs> I don't think it's free. It still costs to put stuff on TV. It still costs to design ads. It still costs to put those things, you know, in spaces. You know, you still have to pay advertising costs, even though it's a public announcement. So those things um, add up. And, and the reality is they were done for public good to make sure people um, had the information they needed to keep themselves and their sam family safe during a global pandemic. Nicola Willis, you would have had a look at this. $124 million in 2020, 2021. What are your thoughts? Well, I'd love to see the breakdown that Ginny has to demonstrate this is all COVID spending because I've had a bit of a look and justice the increases from 350000 when National was in to $2.4 million under Labour. Why would justice be spending money advertising COVID? Just in year one of Labor coming to office, the advertising spend increased by 20 million, and that was before COVID had come to our shores. So I think the overall picture here is that we know this government spends a lot on communications and PR. I mean, the total comm staff across government has increased by about a third, from 380 under national to almost 500 now. And we know that the spending on that and on consultants and advisors has increased hugely. And I think people see that, they feel it, and they think that's not what the priority should be right now. Jenny, that is true. I mean, the comms stuff, and you know, we deal with it every day in this industry. It seems to be uh, more complicated, more people, more involved. Uh, Waka Kotahi, what, over 100 people in, involved in it. Um, there seems to be uh, a feeling uh, 
of the 60s and 70s where it's a government city again? Well, I think there's higher expectations from the public. Um, and social media probably plays a part in that as well, that people want information and they need it immediately. So having that in a whole range of different avenues, I think it goes a long way to having a good democracy so people know what's going on. But at a time when people have been really on edge, it's been a time of angst and anxiety in our community. And the best way um, of, of quelling that, of giving people reassurance, is making sure they have the right information. So I think it goes well to having a good democracy and keeping people calm at a time that's been really stressful. Do you agree? Well, Nick, you made a good point before. Every day during the lockdowns, we had the broadcast from the Beehive Theatreette with the Prime Minister and typically Ashley Bloomfield, and not a cent needed to be paid by the government for those. They were broadcast free to air by TVNZ, RNZ, other channels. So that was a really important way that those messages were shared. I agree we needed public health messaging Uh, during the pandemic but as I said before it's clear there's a lot of wasteful spending going on across the public relations and communications departments of our government agencies and I'd like to see those dollars focused on the front line. Ginny do you think it's time that we started looking at dollars and spending and especially things like advertising and and, you know spend at the moment do you think it's time that we started we're, we're, we're heading for tougher times we all know that we we feel it Inflation's screaming. Is it time to sort of pull the pull the spending in a bit? Well, we definitely have clear guidelines around advertising, and and that's for agencies and their chief executives to determine a, a legitimate purpose. And those things are regularly questioned twice a year in select committee processes when those annual reviews. So if there has been what's perceived to be excessive or unnecessary spending, they're scrutinised very clearly through the regular government you know, the budget cycle when they come before a select committee. But to be to be honest, the numbers do tend to move around based on when different departments have specific needs. So for example, StatsNZ during census, um, they'll have a big push then in terms of more things. So so justice, courts will be doing things differently because of COVID settings. So that's why justice, I haven't seen the line by line, but there'll be a specific need for that spending. And that, that, that spending then is scrutinised twice yearly through the budget cycle. So there are quite clear measures in place to look at excessive or unnecessary spending and to scrutinise that very clearly. Okay, let's move on from that. Parliament's resuming again from tomorrow after a three-week recess. Nicola, what's going to be the main focus this week from your side of the house? Well, we'll be focused on the cost of living and what's going on with our economy. I've spent a lot of time visiting different regions of the country over the recess, and the consistent messages are coming through. People are worried about paying those household bills. Their wages aren't keeping up with prices. Businesses are really worried about getting their hands on workers. Labour shortages are meaning people are having to say no to orders, no to expanding their business, which is no way out of a cost of living crisis. So we'll be asking questions about that and look real concern about the health system. We're still lacking those 4,000 nurses. The government's been very stubborn, refuses to put them on the green list, and it's patients who are paying the price. Jenny, what are you going to be working on? What's it? Firstly, it's three weeks off. Yeah. How good's that? Well, it's not really off. You still do work. You still, you're not like sort of putting your feet up, sitting back watching TV the whole time. Yeah, right. Oh, come on. Um, well, 
for, for me, for, for justice, we've got the firearm prohibition um, bill. So that's um, that's something that's sat around for a long time, and it's under the last government. So it's really good to get those in place. We're doing the we've done the we'll report that back from my select committee, and that'll be passed through the house. So we're passing that through, and along with that legislation, um, there's a whole bunch of work going on in that gang space. So we've got about three or four different legislative changes in terms of um, reducing access to firearms, uh, taking away assets from gangs, and also introducing a new offence for discharging a firearm. Um, uh, in a when will that come all in, come into effect? Because that's so you know. we're working on it right now. So we're hoping it'll be like sort of by the end of next month. We should hopefully have some legislation being introduced. Do you think it'll make any changes? I think it will. Yeah, I think you've got to take those things. Um, you know, together there's got to be the hard frontline stuff. So more police, more police supported, uh, more tools in the kit for police. But at the same time, those underlying drivers of crime of why people might be joining a gang in the first place. So that's, yeah. that's your youth crime and making sure we're working in that space effectively as well. I know it's not on our list, but do you think it's going to make any difference? A gun registry? No, the whole the new policy that's, you know, the uh, making it uh, illegal to fire a shot at, you know, and, and, and scaring somebody and all the other things with with gang-related that Labour are bringing in? Look, I hope so, but the reality is the gangs have grown in size, strength and presence hugely, and the police need more tools than that in their toolkit. Nationals put forward our proposals, ganging, uh, banning gang patches, allowing the police to issue non-consulting orders, allowing the police to disrupt gangs when they're meeting in public places, firearm prohibition orders with search and surveillance powers. So we'd like to see the police better equipped across the board, not just with that new offence of firing a gun. And do you think that this law will enable them to be able to do that or not? Well, I'd like to see it go a lot further. Nationals put some uh, proposals forward in good faith. We uh, continue to encourage the government to pick them up. They're things we think that would really allow the police to go after the gangs and get serious with them. Yeah. Ginny, do you think that what I, I mean, I know when it first came out, I thought that's good, but it's not hard enough and we need it to be harder. Uh, and I don't think it just has to be on gangs. I think law and order needs to be harder. I think we need to put our foot down and say we no longer accept people's houses getting shot at and people being able to go out and buy a $100,000 Harley Davidson motorbike with a suitcase full of cash. I mean, you know, is it more, isn't more required? Look, I, I sort of reject this talking tough stance from National. You know, they've sort of got a bad habit of talking big in opposition and then failing to act when they're in government. And you just can't trust, I, I don't think you can trust them. You know, National cut <laughs> police numbers and, and made it less safe to be on the beat. And that's the truth. We had less police on, on the streets under National. So the, the first and foremost thing to make people safe is making sure we have more police and that they've got the right tools to respond to difficult situations. And that's what this government's doing. Well, uh, I think we've put forward four very specific proposals, Ginny, uh, and I think those are things that the government could take up but is choosing not to. And when I speak to New Zealanders, they say to me, we want the police to have every power they can to go after these guys, uh, and I think it would do well for the minister and for you to listen to that. Well, I, I just think taking banning patches has been tried before and your own former MP Chester Burroughs did it, tried to do it in Whanganui, and he said it was dumb, didn't work. Well, we've said that banning patches, and you combine that with non-consorting orders, you combine that with the ability for police to break up uh, large public gatherings, and you start to get inroads. Part of this is about the attitude we take. 
And I think many of us have been appalled to see police officers uh, being thrown to the ground, daily firearm incidents, ram raids, and there's a sense of disorder. So we want to do everything we can to equip the police to get hard on that. Last week, Ginny, I want to start with you on this one. Last week we saw a video of a female officer being knocked out cold in the middle of the day in downtown Auckland. National MP and former police officer Mark Mitchell has come out and spoken of the sad normality of the incidents and revealed he suffered nearly the exactly the same injury. Um, and the figures don't lie. 2,000 last year police officers got assaulted. Can anything be done to combat police assaults or, or make it less uh, uh, frequent? Well, I think first and foremost, assaults on police are just unacceptable. And look, I saw that video and it made me feel sick. Um, I, I really hope that that female officer is recovering. And I'm, you know, I, I think of her and her family because that was a shocking piece of um, footage that we all got to see. Um, look, the, the best way to m- reduce assaults is to get more police. And so, you know, the, the we have police are vulnerable on the front line is when they're on their own or not able to have backup. So the fact that we've resourced more police, 1,800 more police on the police, on the beat, and also doing things like we're doubling up the, the dog teams. So my husband in his day was a dog handler in AOS, and quite often they're in situations where they're out on one, one person or one officer on their own. So now the, all of those teams are going to be doubled, so there'll be two in those spaces. So I think a, a good way of equipping police to have to deal with assaults um, which they've always had to, uh, knowing that, that, yep, we've had a spike recently. Um, but having two police officers in a space at one time is a good way to make sure that they're, they're protected and safe. Have you had a look at those numbers and thought to yourself, um, I, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's 2,000 every year or whether that was a rogue year last year, but whatever way, it's far, far too many. It's scary, the numbers. And, and if you've, you know, your husband is an ex-policeman and you've been there, done that. I mean, how scary would it be if your daughter decided she wanted to be a policewoman? Well, I do have a daughter who's in corrections, so yeah, I, not not quite police, but I've got a daughter who's in that space. So yes, as a parent, you always think about your kids and you want them to make the, the best choices. You know, you're proud of them for doing a service to the community, but at the same time, you want them to remain safe. So making sure police have the right tools, that they're properly resourced, and that they have good operational practices in place to make sure they're as safe as possible when going into those difficult situations is really important. Nicola, were you concerned, I mean, I know you were concerned, but were you shocked at those numbers? 2,000 police officers last year were assaulted. Yeah, it's terrible. That's around six assaults a day. And anyone who watched that footage of that poor police officer, I'm sure will join me in expressing their sympathy to her because that was awful. And none of us want to see people who choose to serve our community to keep us safe being put at risk like that. And I think really what it shows us is it's the sharp end of a wider problem in which we've got more violent crime occurring, uh, we've got more aggression in our communities. And there are a number of things underneath that. There's gangs, there's recidivist defenders, uh, there's changes in policing. Um, but one thing that struck me that really could help when it, keeps, uh, when it comes to keeping officers safe is just dealing with some of the meth issues in our communities because I'm sure that sometimes these really aggressive incidents are where someone is high on drugs uh, and one of the commitments that Labor made at the last election that it hasn't followed through on was to increase rehabilitation through the Tiara Oranga program which has been really successful. That's the sort of thing I'd like to see happening. Jenny, the meth thing is, I mean that 
screamed out. I know Nicola wasn't saying that, but it screamed out as somebody that was on high on something, middle of the day, probably hadn't slept for the night. Um, you know, I'm, we're all surmising, but that's the sort of incident that occurs. And and that out of those two thousand assaults on police officers, a lot of them would be down to drugs. Yeah, most definitely. Drugs and alcohol are a big factor in driving um, in driving that. And um, look, we have seen huge investment. And a big part of the, the stuff that's driving good change has been in our prisons. We didn't used to have any drug treatment um, available in prisons. And now most of those people who um, who have got that time where they're in complete state control, we're making the most of that time to put them through drug treatment. But I'd be wary. I mean, I, I worked under... When I worked for police, I was seconded into DPMC under John Key's leadership uh, to to work on meth specifically. So there was some good stuff done in there, but it didn't really get followed through. So stuff like testing on price impurity, you know, there was never funding provided to police under that for ESR to be testing for the purity of meth. And so that's the best way we can test what what impact police um, <coughs> law enforcement activity is having on meth. If the price goes up and the purity goes down, then that's a really good way of ensuring that um, that we're making an impact on the market. So back to keeping police safe, is there, I, w- I want to ask you both, is there anything that specifically can be done? Uh, is it as, as simple as actually saying if you assault and, you know, a couple of mates have a fight and one gets head up for assault, it's three months in jail, but if you touch a police officer or someone serving the community, it's double. Is it as, as simple as that or not? Can I just first correct something that Ginny said, which was quite misleading? She said there didn't used to be drug and alcohol treatment programs in prisons. Certainly under national, the amount of that provision grew every year. And in fact, last year, statistics were released that showed there had been a dramatic drop in the number of prisoners accessing drug and alcohol rehabilitation under Labor, down from 4,300 in 2017 to 928. So... Um, We'll just uh, stick to those facts because I agree with Ginny. Drug and alcohol treatment is very important. And when we've got people incarcerated, often they have those underlying issues and treating them is important. I'd just say that those programs that were under national were short term and not effectual. So the evaluations, they were short term in for a couple of weeks, out again, and they don't do anything long term to change behaviour. So you need more money, you need longer terms. If you're really serious about reducing people's um, uh, drug habits and addiction, it takes more than one go and it takes a good effort in that space. It, it's worth it because it saves the taxpayer millions in the long run, but those short-term one-hit wonders might look good on stats, but they don't produce great results. Dr Ashley Bloomfield's having his last week as Director General of Health this week. Ginny, let's start with you on this one. Dr Ash. Dr Ash. I mean, superstar Ash. <laughs> How do you think he's performed? Well, I think he's been sort of like a true public servant in every sense of the word. I think he's done an amazing job, and and it's been a, a really tough time. So I think during his time, he's he has worked to save thousands of lives with careful and and considered advice, and he's been really central to our COVID success as a nation. And um, you know, I just think he's been a reassuring and um, a great figure in a. In a Tough, tough time. And my, my biggest memory of him will be the day he came and played rugby in Wainuiamata. And look, he, it was just a great day. It was a beautiful day. People were able to come out and there was kids with big signs. And he, he was like a superhero. Um, and, and even the, the mayor flicked him a, you know, a pass at the end so he could get a try. And uh, it was a good day. It was, and it, it was really nice when he was giving his sum up that that was one of his favourite memories too because people were really thankful for the work he did and you could see that in their faces. Yeah, my son shared a flight 
not that he knew whatever. He shared a flight to Christchurch a couple of six, eight months ago with Dr. Ash and his wife. And uh, his memory, and I must say this, his memory was, you know, a guy that hopped on a plane, everyone went past and shook his hand and he was smiling and his wife was smiling. Quite often the partners of people that get recognised or uh, are known get a little bit put off. You know, I mean, you, you both would know that. Um, but th- he said that he was just amazing. He smiled and shook people's hands, took a photo with the air hostess, you know, did everything the right way. And that's kind of like my lasting memory of him. I think that sometimes he told me things that I didn't want to hear in business and some things, sometimes he made decisions that hurt me in business. But at the end of the day, I felt he was a good bloke mm. doing his very best for his fellow Kiwis. That's my yeah, summation yeah. of it. That's a good one. Nicola, yeah, look, I, I think I share that sense that he had a massively challenging job and he managed it really well. And he did it with a graciousness and a humility, which I think as Kiwis we really value. You know, he didn't have big ideas about himself uh, and he acted as a humble public servant to the last. Uh, and I imagine when he took that job on, he wasn't anticipating he'd be on national live broadcasts every day in a row for weeks on end, nor that his face would be published on tea towels. Uh, but he took, seemed to take that in his stride and did a good job with it. And, you know, look, obviously National's taken issues with aspects of the uh, COVID response, you know, the, the speed of the vaccine rollout, for example. But I put those issues to the ministers and the government. Uh, and as a public servant, I think that um, Ashley Bloomfield did a great job. And he didn't do it with any um, quick, I, I, just, I don't know whether he did it for any gain for anyone else, but us. That's what, you know? Yeah, I think, well, I think I agree with Nicola on that. It, 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 it's that humble Kiwi part, you know, that, that he was famous but humble. And yeah. I think that's part, a really central part of our identity as, as New Zealanders. Yeah, mm. okay, okay. He, he so didn't seek celebrity, it was thrust upon him and, and he, he managed it well. And he didn't, yeah, he didn't abuse it, yeah. which a lot of people do. Mm. Michael Baker. Um, <laughs> quick fire. My thoughts. That was only my thoughts. Sorry, Jack. I'm going to get told off at the end of the show. Quick fire questions, right? Starting with you, Jenny. Yep. All right. Would Chloe Swarbrick make a good leader for the Green, Green Party? Oh, I'm sure she would. Yes. She has leadership capabilities, but James Shaw uh, is someone that I've had personal dealings with, and um, I don't think that he would want to be upended by her. Thanks. It was supposed to be quick fire. Jack, thanks for <laughs> yeah, yeah. giving. Jack gave the free <laughs> rein a little yeah. bit. He came in. Jack came in at the quick fire and said, "You can have a couple of words. It doesn't have to be quick, quick it's fire." Like a minute. Like yeah, a minute that was or? too long. No, no. I'm going to start with you, Nicola, on this one. Is it time we had one official COVID nineteen commentator rather than an array of experts? Michael Voker again. Oh, look, you always need a range of voices. There's never one voice of truth. Yeah, you, you, well, you can't stop people from speaking. That, that's not free speech. So, I, more the more voices, you know, is you, you've got to edit them out and get some good advice from. My my thing is though that if we had one person that was like the government's person that uh, everybody says that's the that's the the epidemiologist we are going to listen to. I think contested advice is always a good thing, and then ultimately politicians take accountability for their own decisions. Yeah. God, it's two Hold weeks in a row I've got it wrong here, Ginny. Hold hey. it up to the light, get a good look at it. Yeah. Okay. All right, start with you, Ginny, on this one. It's supposed to be quick fire. Is it time that Brian Tamaki faced some consequences for all the BS he's putting us through? Definitely, yes. I would say yes. 
Yeah, look, I just don't understand um, what the attraction is to Mr. Tamaki. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask you to have an attraction to him. I just, I, just, I think you, I think you're pushing the barrier out there that way. But he's got followers, hasn't he? Yeah, he does, and I don't quite understand it. Okay, you know what? We agree on that one. I don't either. Yeah. Uh, okay, Nicola. Should three waters become two waters? It should become zero waters. There's no community support for it. You don't think so? No, I don't think that the public want to see four mega entities created and all community voice and control of ratepayer assets removed. Okay, you had far too much to say on that one. Coming to you, Ginny, should three waters become two waters? No, I think we don't want poo in our beaches or in our drinking water. And I think stormwater is just as important because look at all the, 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 the you know rubbish we've got going around Wellington alone. So uh, it's already um, in a whole lot of different entities. I think by having it centralised and well-managed and well-funded, we'll get better quality water in our country. Do you both think it will go through? Yeah. Well, if it does, uh, that, that, that will lose the government a lot of votes come election time. Well, I think there's a lot of support on the ground and it's often the louder voices that get heard more, but the, I see a lot of good support for wanting to do the right thing for people and their kids to have clean water. Will it get overturned if National get in? Yes. There's wow. other ways of achieving the things that Ginny sets out. Yeah, they just haven't been done <laughs> ever before. <laughs> Okay, that's the final word. That's it. I'm turning your mics off. Uh, Politics Monday, Labour MP for the Hutt South, Ginny Anderson, and National Deputy Leader, Nicola Willis. Great to have you both in the studio. Great to, for you to come in with your boxing gloves and left in the car and have a chat <laughs> on the, in the morning. Thank you, Nick. Great stuff, Nick. Have ha- a good week. Have a great week at Parliament. Yeah, yes, always. En- enjoy it. 90% of parenting is just thinking about when you can have a break. <sighs> And when you do take a break, enjoy the Parenting Hangover podcast. They go together like a tutu and jandals. We've said from the get-go, we ain't parenting experts. No. But it's cool to hear, what is your neighbour doing? What do they say? A problem shared is a problem halved. Oh, that's good. Not that my children are problems, but I feel better talking about it. The Parenting Hangover with Clinton Jordan. New episodes every Thursday on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.